Well, friends, please take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5. I think it is very easy to forget how frail you are, very easy to forget how easily broken we can be. I went home to help my wife this week. Uh, Our boy had some oral surgery completed and uh, she needed a little assistance after that. And uh, in my great effort to help, I went bounding down the stairs, bringing a Kleenex to the boy and uh, wiped out, fell, sprained my ankle, you know, crashed into a wicker basket, uh, lying there in a heap. I'm the guy that's supposed to be helping. I'm clutching my ankle, crying. And uh, thinking, here we go again. It's amazing how quickly you can find out how weak and frail you really are. I had lived most of my life as the mighty stair conqueror. I don't think about stairs when I go upstairs. I don't think about stairs when I go downstairs. I've been thinking about stairs all the time since Wednesday. I might live my life like the mighty stair conqueror, but that doesn't change who I really am. I am just a simple bipod that is easily tripped up and who's got frail ankles. (laughs) A sudden tumble down the stairs hit me with reality. Are you willing to admit that there are weaknesses in you that maybe you've been working really hard to ignore or deny or forget. The kinds of weaknesses that could be suddenly exposed without a moment's notice and leave you in a rather desperate place. When when God flooded the earth, he was suddenly exposing something about mankind that mankind had been working very, very hard to ignore, forget, and deny. The world had been flooded with debauchery long before it met the flood of many waters. And and we need to see something of the sinfulness of sin in order to understand the sudden and fair justice of God in wiping out humanity except for eight people. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 5, and I want to begin to show you four facts about sin. The first one is this. Sin made things really, really bad in the world. I am talking here primarily about the circumstances, the actions of the world. You'll remember Genesis 4 is the sad story of Cain killing his brother Abel, and then we're given the genealogy of Cain, which is really just a whole line of treacherous murderers. And then in Genesis chapter 5, we're introduced to Seth. He's kind of the Abel replacement brother. And Seth's line comes along, and that genealogy is filled with people who walk with God. 
And this genealogy of Seth in chapter 5 ends with this little genealogy of a man named Noah. And it's said of this man Noah that he would provide the world with something unique. He's going to bring relief. So Genesis 5 verse 28 Uh, When Lamech Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, Noham, uh, Nahoam, something like that. Uh, There's a sound alike between the word relief and, and the name Noah. This one will bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so Lamech sees in the birth of his son a kind of rescuer from the curse and its effects. And then comes Noah's genealogy, chapter 5, verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth, full stop. Now that genealogy of Noah is picked up again in chapter 6. Look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. But between the first start of his genealogy, the first mention of his genealogy, and the second, there are these verses that are extremely important and yet extremely weird. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. But I think what these verses are doing primarily is providing for us a context of what comes next. Why the flood is coming. So without getting caught up in the meaning of everything here, uh, just, I want you just to listen to sort of the tone of things, what was going on here. Genesis 6 verse 1, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive or good and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide a man forever for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward where the sons of, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, the people of big name. This paragraph is weird. There's no way around it. I'm 100% positive I am not going to answer all of your questions about Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4. But I do want to observe a few things. The first one is this. Notice that the sons of God objectify certain women. They saw them. Women that they then determined were good. The ESV translates it as attractive. And then they took them. They saw, they were good, and they took. That's meant to ring a bell in your memory, a reading bell. And if you think about that, chapter 6, verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good, and they took as their wives any as they chose. Saw, good, took. What does that sound like? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she took of its fruit and ate. This is the vocabulary of sin. Saw, good, and took. They saw, they evaluate based on appetite, based on physicality. It's good. They determine value by appearances, whether it's Eve or whether it's these individuals. They're not evaluating based on the truth of God. And then they take, they act out selfishly, not sacrificially, not like God nor his character. So whatever's going on here with the sons of God and the daughters of man, it's not good and it's not godly. And it's held up as a kind of example of the wickedness of sin. Things are this bad. It's all the opposite of God. 
It could be this is a display of the exaltation of human power and human achievement, large harems, powerful armies with strong leaders, perhaps even the intrusion of demonic beings into the lives of mankind. But there's something else here. There's, there's no distinction here between those who follow Yahweh and those who do not. The line of Cain, line of Seth distinction is, is getting blurred. Cain was a murderer. Seth was a good son. Cain's lineage is marked by the arrogant, murderous Lamech. Seth's lineage is marked by the godly walk with God, Enoch. But now that distinction is getting blurred. In fact, in the context of these genealogies that bump up against chapter 6, it, it leads some to see that the sons of God might be referring to Seth's line and the daughters of man might be referring to Cain's line. And what's getting described here in chapter 6 verses 1 to 4 is the intermarriage or the, the mixing of God followers with God rejectors. And that's not too far-fetched because clearly the intermarriage of God's people with the people of the world is an ongoing problem. It becomes a problem in Israel. It's even addressed for Christians. Christians are told that they may only marry in the Lord. That's an issue of grace, not race, by the way. God's marriage restriction is all about what church you come from, not what country you come from or what your background is. But what is happening here is potentially the intermarriage between the godly and the ungodly, which leads to a kind of further corruption of the human race. The third option is understanding these verses, uh, in these verses, sons of God to refer to angelic beings who have left their proper place and are now cohabiting with human women. Whatever is going on here, whether it's a strange mix of demons or demons that are possessing physical men or whether it has nothing to do with demons and it has something to do with God followers and not God followers, whatever it is, all the options are making the same point. Things are bad. Things are perverse. Things are corrupt. It's not unlike the West prior to covid we will just do what we want, when we want, how we want, for whatever reason we feel like. We will lust after others. We will take what we want. We will use one another for our own ends. Funny how a virus and lockdowns can expose that arrogance of concern. And so, giving this example, the author now moves on to talk about the cause of this. So, the examples are followed by the cause and the cause leads us to the second fact about sin. Sin made things really bad in people. So our first fact is sin made things bad in the world. But now we see that sin made things really bad in people. Look at chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, what he was doing, was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How different from the last time we were told God saw, Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and it was what? Very good. Now this author goes on, chapter 6 verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord God said, I will blot man, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. God says that he regrets creating mankind. Let that sink in. 
it's, it's not regret in the sense of, oh, I made a mistake. It's, it's the feeling of sorrow at what man has done and what man has become. And God determines to rid the world of terrestrial life. Let that sink in. Man, animals, birds, these are the creation day categories. God is going to expunge the world of all of them. The big point that is being made here is that things are bad. Things are bad in the world, but things are bad in mankind. Things are bad in people. And this is picked up again just a few verses later, verse 11 of chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Corrupt, that word is there three times. Violence is there two times. Corrupt means the earth has been spoiled, disfigured, immoral. Uh, It's been ruined Violence speaks of physical harm, brutality, uh, false accusations, injustice. The earth is full of this. God had instructed mankind in chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more humans. But evil humankind have been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth with violence, with corruption. I want to pause there and make a really, really important connection for you. The Lord saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it is out of that heart that the wickedness of man is great in the earth. It's out of that heart that all flesh has corrupted their way on the earth. The corruption and the wickedness that was in the world came out of humans. It did not come out of God. It was not a result of angels. It was not out of the environment. It is man's inner self, his heart. Ruined hearts produce corrupt actions. Actions. In answer to the age-old question, it is nature, not nurture. The sinful nature is the direct result of Adam's sin of eating the forbidden fruit. Paul said, one trespass led to condemnation for all. One man's disobedience made the many sinners. One man's sin brought condemnation to all. Through one man's trespass, many died. By one man's trespass, death reigned. This is what sin does. This is what sin did to the pre-flood world. God was simply allowing people to be who they really were, constitutionally. Constitutionally, positionally, and ontologically. This, this is who they were. It's, it's absolutely essential to understand what's going on here in order to understand why the flood is justified. Verse 5 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The actions of mankind were wicked because the internal soul, the heart of every human, was only evil continually. Now the heart here, the heart refers to the inner person. The Hebrew did not consider the heart the seat of emotions only, but rather the heart refers to the inner person as a whole. So when the author chooses that word heart, he's thinking of mind, will, emotion, choice, There's your body and then there's your insides, your heart. 
And God dissects the inner person here a little bit. He talks about the thoughts of his heart. What goes on in the heart. What we would think of more as the mind. Those impressions and judgments, musings, the internal weavings of the consciousness. And so we dive deep into the man, but we're moving past actions now to the heart. But now we're talking about the thoughts of the heart. But even more than that, the intention of the thoughts of the heart. Intentions are the the, the framings or the, the purpose behind each thought. Every single one of those convictions or presuppositions or leanings that inform our conscious thought. You might think of the heart as the building, the thoughts as the foundation, the intentions as the blueprint. And all of this, this inner person, all together was what? Last three words of verse 5. Only evil continually. Only. Meaning exclusively, without exception. Continually, meaning unceasingly, without interruption. Evil, the opposite of God in every way. Man, people were bad in Noah's day. Then comes the whole story of the flood, chapter 6, the rest of chapter 6, chapter 7, Noah and his family, they're spared. There's there's the recreation of creation taking place. And then you go to chapter 8 and verse 20, and you read this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. They've come out of the ark now and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So the flood story ends with God making this promise, I'm never going to bring judgment like this again, but I want you to pay attention to the reason that God gives. Verse 21. I've always thought, this is never what I expected verse 21 to say. Here's how I would have written verse 21. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because a man for the evil intention of man's heart has been fixed. As if God washed away sin when he washed away sinners. But that's not how it works at all. God says, I will never again curse the ground even though man's heart is still the same corrupted mess. Look at the words, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is the most startling thing about the flood account. Pre-flood people are described this way. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Post-flood people are described this way. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Different words that say the exact same thing, which means you and I are just like the people who were destroyed in the flood. That takes me to fact number three. Sin makes things really bad in you. At our very core, 
we are no different than the pre-flood population that filled the earth with corruption and violence. Here is how a couple of post-flood authors described you and described me. David said this, Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 3 and verse, verse 10 as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. No one does good, not even one. Paul and David are living after the flood and they tell us that in no uncertain terms, this is how God evaluates the hearts of men. Corrupt, spiritually ignorant, without good. Which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus said when he was on the earth. And people were asking him questions and he responded and said, For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual Immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Friends, that's just another way of saying every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Which is why no man nor any woman can do anything to save themselves. That's why you can't do anything to save yourself. Sin is too powerful. It is too comprehensive in its scope. It is too infiltrated into our being. It is too behind our thoughts. It is too much a part of every look, dream, and sigh with the result that all of us, every single one of us, in the words of the apostle, are dead in our sins. We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slave to various lusts and passions, that is us. All of us, without exception, without interruption. But in contrast to this is one man in this flood story named Noah. Go back to Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He was righteous. He, he, he positively, he was doing the things that are in line with God and God's character. He's blameless. Doesn't mean he's sinless. It just means that when he sinned, he knew what to do, how to get right with God, which is why he walked with God. He had fellowship with God, relationship with God. He was a friend to his creator. And we should be saying, well, how's that even possible? And that takes me to fact number four. Sin's only solution is grace. Look at verse 8 in chapter 6. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor could just as easily be translated grace. And grace is a little more 
familiar to us, so we'll, we'll use it that way. What, is, what do we mean by grace? The free, unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. The no obligation favor of God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, Noah was, was born like everybody else. He sinned like everybody else. He deserved to be swept away in a flood like everybody else. But God had grace on Noah, undeserved favor on Noah. God chose to do something in Noah's case that he did not do in everybody else's case. It was something he was under no obligation to do for anybody's case, but he did it with Noah. He chose to have grace with Noah. Noah was saved out of the judgment by grace, and nothing has changed since then. The only way to be saved from sin and what sin delivers is by God's grace. In those very verses I was reading a moment ago from David and from Paul, we read about being dead in our sins, being children of wrath, being under sin. Those same passages in the same context go on to speak about the grace of God. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul has just told everybody, you're dead in your sins, you're children of wrath. That means you're born deserving the wrath of God. When he has described all these things, you get to verse 4. Four and he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And it was the same grace that God showed Noah. Kids, you tell me, do you think God saved Noah because Noah was really good at building boats? No. Good answer, no. Do you think that God saved Noah because he was really good at being a zookeeper? No. Why did God save Noah? He saves Noah because of his grace, God's grace. God is gracious to Noah. And that's the only way God's going to save any one of us too. It was grace that came to Noah because of sacrifice. In Noah's case, it's the sacrifice of those clean animals. You ever wonder why some animals, there's seven pairs of them and the other animals are only one pair? Well, the seven-paired animals, they're, they're, just, they're waiting their time till Noah comes out of the ark, builds an altar, and slaughters them as a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a sin offering. It is a sacrifice that was pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who's the final sacrifice for sin. We don't, we don't slaughter animals anymore because Jesus came. He is the fulfillment of what all those animal sacrifices were pointing toward. But what I want you to see out of this text this day is just how desperately wicked we are. The whole earth was in wicked rebellion against God except for one man. And the only reason that one man was not in wicked rebellion against God was because of God's grace. God's grace when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. When God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In days not like unlike ours, as Jesus said, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. One of the great errors you can make in reading the account of this flood narrative is to think, I'm Noah. The persons that you should be identifying with are Noah's neighbors who were mocking him, laughing at him as he's building a big barge in the desert. This guy's nuts. They're just going on and on with their lives. 
Friend, the Bible is clear. Whether it's the line of Seth versus the line of Cain or godly Noah versus ungodly Lamech or the church versus the world, you always belong to only one of two groups, the people who walk with God or the people who ignore God, the people who reject God, the people who don't know God. Are you going through life ignoring God's call to repent while you just presume on his patience, yeah, I'll get around to that one day. But now you're eating and drinking and being married and buying and selling and building and planting like life is just going to keep going on and on and on and on. And you'll never have to explain yourself to God. Friend, the day may come very suddenly when you shall stand before God in your own person and you will give a defense of your life. All this getting on with life while there's this final judgment looming over top of you. Not a judgment of water, but a judgment of fire. Second Peter verse 9 of chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. God's not up in heaven saying, oh, I can't wait to zap them. He's looking down on this earth saying, oh, I can't wait to save them. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Are you prepared for that day? Just like there was no toilet paper to be found when the pandemic hit, you will find no room to repent when the Lord returns. You're out of time. Are you a Noah or are you one of Noah's neighbors? Noah was a man under grace. God had saved him. His neighbors could have cared less. All of us are in desperate need of the grace of God. And this grace he is offering we, we just read this of his desire for all people to reach repentance. God is being patient to give you opportunity to reach, to arrive at repentance. Repentance is owning your sin for what it is and turning away from it, renouncing it, and then looking to Jesus Christ, that final and true sacrifice, and putting all of your confidence in him. This is good news. Peter was preaching once and said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, that means you, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The, the way to find God and his grace is to turn away from your sins toward Jesus Christ, and you can do this very thing today. But beloved, this is not just a warning to those who don't know Christ. It's a warning to those who know Christ. Peter goes on in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved, the earth and the heavens, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Christian brother, Christian sister, if you, if you really believe the story of Noah, then you're going to try your darndest to live the life 
of Noah, a life like Noah, full of godliness and holiness, waiting, expecting, hastening the day of the Lord's return. I learned this week that a fall down the stairs can hit without a moment's notice. And there's a whole bunch of people who learned that a flood can come without a moment's notice. Friend, the day of judgment will come without a moment's notice. Are you going to be one of those people who is rejoicing at the return of Jesus? Or are you going to be one of those people who spends eternity regretting that you didn't listen to the warning and the call to repentance and faith I gave you today? Let's pray together. So our Father, we pray that you would ensure all of our hearts have been made right by the blood of Christ. That Every one of us has trusted in the Lord Jesus alone for our salvation. There would not be a single soul that would end the day without being saved. Our world is a corrupt place. It is full of violence. We have contributed to the mess. Praise be to God that you save your people. That by your grace, you rescue them. You grant them repentance and faith that they might believe. Holy Spirit, do this work even now in our midst. Save all who are lost. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, if you have felt something of the depth of the wickedness of sin and what God has rescued you from, then if you are a Christian, I invite you to stand with me now and read responsively from Psalm 18. This is an exclamation of our love for God. We are rejoicing in what God has done for us. Please stand with me. I'll read the parts that say leader. We'll all read the parts that say all. That's the start and the finish. And then you read the parts that say congregation, right? So all you have to remember is don't read the parts that say leader. That's for me. You read the rest. Let's read out loud together. We love you, O Lord, our strength. The Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God, our rock in whom we take refuge, our shield and the source of our salvation, our stronghold. We called upon... The cords of death encompassed us. The cords of the grave entangled us. The snares of death confronted us. From his temple, he heard our voice, and our cry to him reached his ears. He rescued us because he delighted in us. 
We love you, O Lord, our strength. Amen. You can remain standing and we will praise our God together in song and in particular think closely about what our Lord Jesus has done for us. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. I'll love thee in life, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath, and say when the death to lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. In mansions of glory, in endless delight, I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with the glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Nearer, still nearer, close to thy heart, draw me, my Savior, so precious thou art. Fold me, oh, fold me, close to thy breast, me safe in that haven of rest. Shall 
And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath, reserved on me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. You may be seated. <clears throat> 